0: Welcome to Content Disrupted, Bold Takes on Brand Marketing. I'm your host, Casey Noble, and together we'll explore what it takes to excel in brand marketing at one of the most exciting and disruptive times in industry history. Welcome back to Content Disrupted, Bold Takes on Brand Marketing. Our guest today is Bob Sherwin, former chief marketing officer for the homeware giant Wayfair and current board member, advisor, and investor through both public and private companies. With over 20 years of operating experience as a global marketing executive, advisor, and business strategist, including over four years at McKinsey, Bob's a marketing industry leader who has a lot to say on today's topic of how to blend brand and performance
1: marketing. So Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. Great to be here.
0: Of course. So before we dive in, I have to ask, diving a little bit into your career background, what drove the shift? from business consulting into specializing in marketing and running an entire global marketing organization?
1: That's a great question. I get it a lot. I think what I did in consulting, what I learned there was a fantastic continuation of my broader like business education from both undergrad and when I got my MBA, right? It was a great chance to refine and develop like analytical skills, putting structure around ambiguous problems. Or opportunities, and then finding ways to mobilize teams to go after those. It's a great training ground for like building and leading teams, frankly, as well as that those problem solving capabilities. So when I did that for largely 10 years, and what was missing was it doesn't really give you a chance to be an operator, to actually run a business line or a function. And so my transition to Wayfair was more about The desire to become an operator. Then it was specifically about moving into marketing. I was really lucky to come across Wayfair. And at the time, it was quite a small company, it was not public yet. And they were looking to build out their marketing strategy approach, build out the team. And they were willing to take a chance on a non marketer, someone who hadn't been in that role before. I knew marketing. I went to Kellogg, a great marketing program at McKinsey. I did a good number of studies, projects on marketing and sales. Initiatives, but I'd never been in the role and they were willing to put me in it. So that was just great. And for me, it was very fun to come into this role. I was hired initially to lead acquisition marketing, which for Wayfair was essentially all about finding new ways to grow the business, is the way it was really defined and presented to me, both by leveraging existing channels, marketing channels, and making them better and making them work harder for us and and more efficiently. And For me to figure out what other new channels or approaches or tactics would be relevant for our brands to test and learn and develop a capability around, I eventually took over all aspects of marketing for all of our brands and geos after a few years there. And I got to steer that organization from when it was very small to quite large when I left just a few months ago. So I'm so excited, given that breadth of experience,
0: to be able to pick your brain today obviously we want to hone in a little bit on some of those big levers that you had to deal with pulling like brand and performance marketing. And this has been a hot topic, but a hot topic for a while in marketing, as we've seen CMOs shift from typically being like bullish on one or the other coming in to really the necessity of both and even the convergence of both. So First, would you say, let's say coming into Wayfair, that given your background, you started out rooted in one or the other, maybe not being in marketing, you had the advantage of not necessarily being rooted in one or the other. Like, How did philosophy around
1: brand versus performance or brand and performance evolve over time? I didn't have deeply held beliefs about one or the other being better or worse. I think the advantage that gave me is I saw the role that they both played. I was constantly preaching that we should not look at things that are simply brand channels and then other things that are simply performance channels. And I think for me, it was easy to say that when I came in because for me, I saw so many parallels and I wanted our channel leaders that were working on what would be traditionally considered a brand channel to have a performance lens. If for nothing else other than, how do you know you're doing well? What is your feedback loop to ensure that this is working? how are you going to make it 5% better in terms of building the brand, even if it was a brand channel, right? Like how do we continuously improve? Because for me, that was a deeply held like management philosophy that any business person, whether they're a first job or whether they're a very seasoned executive to have that continuous improvement mindset. So I don't know how you can continuously improve unless you create feedback loops and ways to assess how you're doing. And so for me, I always felt brand channels don't get a free pass on that. It's not just about creating a campaign and putting it out there in the wild and then you know, hoping it does well. How do you know it did better than the last campaign? And then on the performance side, in a similar fashion, I wanted to make sure that those teams that were running channels that would traditionally be considered performance-based, let's say it's digital retargeting or paid search, where you have great feedback loops, you can really get a lot of insights from the data very quickly. I wanted to make sure that they weren't so focused on the performance of numbers, but they were also understanding the mindset of the consumer. They were understanding how they were engaging with these ads, because by thinking about the customer and how our brand was showing up would help them realize, and it did, that there's other levers in there. It's not just about our bid levels and targets. It's also about how we're presenting the brand for the moment that customer is in. What is their mindset at that moment? Much like brand marketers would traditionally already be doing. So for me, it was more about converging the two than it was about treating them vastly different. That being said, we were very thoughtful about what channels are better at telling brand stories versus other channels that there was, it was only a little bit of text that you're given or a very small ad unit on Meta. You just have less of a canvas, but what you make up for that in terms of the data you have access to and your ability to optimize those campaigns literally on a daily basis, where you may not be able to do that with a TV campaign.
0: Right. So bringing that into your practical experience at Wayfair, more specifically, while you were there, you were instrumental in developing a global marketing strategy that drove revenue increasing from like 500 million, I think, in 2013 to 15 billion, just over the course of seven years. So I know there was a lot going on in terms of the business model and the brand changing that was a backdrop to that. But can you share some of your biggest lessons learned about balancing as you were approached with that huge challenge to build brand awareness as Wayfair? Because formerly, I believe it was a huge collection of microsites and you came in during that transition. How are you balancing that focus on brand building? What activities were you prioritizing? And how are you driving ongoing
1: revenue growth with thinking about like transactional business at the same time? Yeah, huge challenge. But in the moment, we were just breaking it up into digestible chunks and pieces of the puzzle. I feel like the first any of these conversations I'm sure you have with other CMOs or, or marketing leaders, like having a solid in line vision of what your brand is and what it stands for is core, is critical. And I was fortunate that when I joined, we had a really strong brand leader, someone who is like classically trained at PNG and and spent many years there. And so I think when I joined moving from the microsites that you refer to CSN stores to Wayfair, they used agencies and they brought in someone who really helped make sure the entire organization knew what the brand stood for. And that helped in the creative execution and how we were telling stories for that phase of where we were, particularly the first like five, six years where I was at Wayfair. So we had that. And so then it was about how do we make the most of that brand? How do we get the message out there and build awareness and build ultimately preference? What are the best channels to do that? And then how do we close those sales? If we're doing a great job generating that awareness and consideration, how do we ensure we're there to capture it? And so I looked at the entire marketing funnel. What are the channels we have stood up today? What are our existing capabilities? What are the data structures, the strategies, right? The short-term and long-term priorities and the daily tactics. And I did this, I, I really think about doing this when I was onboarding and how when you start a new role at a new company or you take on a new team, how amazing that onboarding period is because you have the kind of excuse of being a, yeah, a new learner, right? You can ask questions. And so when I was onboarding onto the team and I tried to continue these practice, you're asking questions, they're sharing with you how things work. You uncover a lot of opportunities, whether it's just sources of waste or growth opportunities. And oftentimes teams are already aware of those opportunities in their platform, but maybe they don't know how to go after it. Maybe they need a little support because it requires a lot of cross-functional alignment. You often do other times uncover, connect dots on better approaches. When I onboarded and then just when I was running my team, I think a big part of what I viewed my role as is making sure teams are aware of what they're doing, are aware of their top priorities, are operating their program or channel with like a operational excellence mindset. Some people would maybe only be five or ten percent of time. Others maybe fifty percent of their time, but maybe on average about twenty five percent of time on bigger needle moving initiatives. So my thought process had always been: you need to be running your program really well every day, and if you do that, you're going to be really tuned into where there's opportunities, and then you need to, in parallel, make sure you are carving out a solid chunk of time every day or every week to push on those initiatives. that may not make today a better day, but something that would be an investment that makes the next in six months or 12 months, we're going to see step change improvement. And that could be things from starting a new channel, right? So maybe they're running one channel and there's a new partner or publisher that we're testing into. So really running a really rich test and learn agenda so we can figure that out. Or in other cases, it may be more of an internal capability, like building a better personalization model that we can deploy across our own channels, like on-site marketing or through email. And really working with a data science team to make those models more predictive and ultimately more performative as well. And so that's one thing I definitely did. And I just emphasize it because it's really just basic kind of problem solving and like team leadership. It doesn't matter if you're doing that in a marketing role or a supply chain role. I think that's just a good practice to be meeting with your team, jointly discovering what the opportunities are, and then depending on their capabilities or how many times they've done it, you're giving a lot of help and putting process in place to see those initiatives through. Or in other cases, letting them run at it and do it their own because they're quite capable. And you can just be there as a sounding board or to get alignment with other cross-functional teams. I think the other theme for me was Given the history of Wayfair being largely a technology company at our core, I tried to lean in on leveraging data, leveraging technology, leveraging good processes, and eventually data science teams for a lot of the initiatives we pushed on. A, a lot of those were highly cross-functional, right? It wasn't just core marketers that could do it. It did require technical teams. It required engineers. It required data scientists. And a lot of our big breakthroughs really were super cross-functional and inclusive of all those teams. When I think about some of our biggest wins, others, really big wins would be things that that were more traditionally central to marketing would be some of the campaigns we ran or our partnerships with either other brands or big celebrities like Kelly Clarkson. But other ones that really made the brand grow tremendously or a little less interesting to marketers, some marketers at least, or brand marketers, because they really dealt with How do we set up better retargeting campaigns? Again, I mentioned personalization. How do we speak to a customer, this huge group? We're a mass market company. How do we make the experience of partnering with Wayfair feel a little bit more relevant to you, right? That requires both understanding the customer, but also technology that you can actually make that come to life, right? That you can actually deliver on a more tailored experience. So I think the second theme, other than problem solving with teams, in prioritizing, would be around knowing when and where to leverage technology and then finding the right skill sets within the organization to go after that opportunity that may be quite technical in nature. And then otherwise, it would be looking at the full funnel, looking at all of our channels, paying attention to what's going on out in the ecosystem. What are new platforms that are coming alive? Where are other brands having success? And then where do we think we have gaps in our funnel, or maybe there's a new kind of arbitrage opportunity that if we lean in and partner really closely with a a partner like Meta or Google or Pinterest, we may be able to have a breakthrough on their platform with a new ad platform or ad product that they're creating before others have figured it out. And that was another thematic thing that we were always on the lookout for, trying to be early adopters of new ad units and new capabilities that those big publishing partners were putting out. And then the last one I would have to mention would be central to all of this is really trying to be in the head of the customer. Really thinking about who our customers are, the problems they're trying to solve, and ensuring that at every touch point we have with them, we're tailoring the message to that moment in time, right? To where that customer is in their journey of buying furniture or decor or decorating their home. For us, for that category and vertical, it's a very long consideration cycle. It's oftentimes a very big purchase for them. So they put a lot of thought and energy into it. And so we want to be in the consumer's head at every stage of that journey so that we could most appropriately and most helpfully tailor our message to them and ensure we're pointing them to the right portion of our catalog and the right spot in our website, or even to the right sales team to help them with the specific problem that they're trying to address. I think you've made a great point in pointing out how much
0: you can benefit the business's revenue and bottom line by investing in the internal transformation and team structure and the right leadership model, being a facilitator versus just imposing rules on everyone. But you also mentioned the elephant in the room, which is data. And I would be remiss if I didn't dive into this with you because... I know at IBM, at McKinsey, IBM, I think you were working with federal agencies more specifically improving data infrastructure, but really solving like big hairy data problems. And so I can only imagine that you found some parallels when you moved brand side with like untangling is the tech stack and how folks were looking at data. So I have to ask first, I wanna look at sort of the data input side. So you mentioned like getting inside the head of the customer. What was your approach? How are you thinking about or what tips can you share for determining signals from the noise? Like what data points do you prioritize tracking and paying attention to? Maybe some of them are different now, given capabilities having evolved
1: since your time at Wayfair. But what do you think
0: brands should be focusing on from an input standpoint?
1: Typically, the challenge for companies and organizations isn't having the data, it's about being able to easily access it and then having good hypotheses and then looking at the data to see if that hypothesis is correct or not. And if you don't have the data exactly, and then running a test to prove it out. And I think we just live in this wonderful time where particularly in e-commerce, but even increasingly so, there's not much of a gap with most brick and mortar that we do have a lot of data and most things are testable. So I think one of the things that was A huge pillar of the marketing organization and a huge part of the success we had was creating a testing culture where we would leverage the data, right, and structure a test. We would sometimes look in the data to see if there's insights there that say there's something to this idea. And then we'd run a more structured test, really prove it out and to build on that learning. And a lot of those tests or hypotheses were wrong. We would learn just as much from those and we'd really try to say, why was that? Why didn't the customer respond more favorably to that messaging? What could it be? Was it too confusing? It was too wordy, right? It was just like too much for them to think about, even though it was articulating an even stronger value prop than this other one, which was a weak value prop, but it worked better because it didn't make them think too much. So the point here is like having hypotheses is great. It's then leveraging the data. Don't just go off gut when you can actually run a test. And then if it's a success, great. And if it was a loss, great. What can you learn from that to make yourself a better marketer and better understand how customers think?
0: And were you challenging partners like data partners, platform partners to say like, hey, here's our hypothesis and we want your help in figuring out how to test this the most effectively in the market? What kind of pressure were you putting
1: on your internal team to own that versus partners? Yeah, I think when we could own it, we would try to own it because we would rather build that capability internally, assuming there is some like repeatability to it. I definitely prioritized using as much first party data as we could so that we were grading our own homework versus having others grade their own homework. However, you can't do everything on your own. And so we have put a lot of effort and emphasis into our partnerships with all of the publishers out there. And there were definitely many times where we needed their help, right? And we would try to problem solve with them and say, all right, based on the capabilities you have on your platform and this objective we're trying to go after together with you, what do you suggest? How can we do this? And sometimes that meant, right, doing some form of data sharing in a clean room. Other times it meant we were helping influence their product roadmap because it was a capability that they wanted to build because if we were asking for it, maybe they had three or four other big advertisers asking for something similar. So we certainly invested a lot in our partnerships with both big and small publishing partners.
0: Awesome. And then you were talking about also measuring performance as you're testing, measuring performance, creating that closed loop of okay, why did this perform asking the right questions. When it comes to measuring performance, it doesn't sound like you were doing what a lot of brands do, which can be someone's owning brand marketing, someone's owning more traditional performance marketing and There are these different KPIs and siloed KPIs, and each is being measured differently. Like, what was your approach to attribution? And do you have tips for building more accurate attribution models today
1: that sort of blend the two in a way that's more meaningful for the business to draw conclusions from? It's a great question. And there isn't a singular, like super simple answer because it's a really challenging problem but it's a fun and interesting problem. And I think it's one that brands and companies will be working on for a long time. So there's a lot there. So how do we think about what metrics matter, right? So ultimately, like that, what we think about, what are the things that galvanize the whole business around? We're talking about, right, the success of everything we're doing in marketing, but even all the other touch points and parts of the business that many other functions are driving. So from a commercial lens, I think a great thing to look at it if you can, If you can define your market correctly and you can get this data as market share, right? How are you doing in terms of maintaining or taking or losing market share? That is a great way to see how you're doing versus competition, how you're doing through the lens of the consumer, where they are spending dollars. And I think in the last like four or five years where consumer budgets and where their spend is going has had to fluctuate tremendously given COVID and the stimulus and then inflation, I think actually leveraging market shares become almost more important for marketing organizations to leverage. And maybe the theme here is it's all about triangulation. There's not a singular metric that's going to both help the entire business understand how you're doing. Brand market share is a pretty good one, but also help marketing teams make really good day-to-day decisions. Market share does not help a team that's managing Google shopping ads know what decisions to make today. There's other metrics that are much more helpful that are much more precise and accurate and timely, but I think that's one good one. We also would leverage brand surveys to understand how we're doing in terms of moving awareness, consideration, and ultimately those can be just steps to get to preference. Ultimately, what I cared about was driving preference. I wanted consumers to eventually not just be aware that Wayfair existed and not just have it in their consideration set, but be the preferred partner where they would shop, right? Because that's the nirvana state. Because then that means you're not going to have to convince them to come to you. You're not going to have to insert yourself when they're searching on Google because they won't search on Google. They'll just come directly to you for free, right? Because they prefer you. It's getting to that nirvana state that I think Airbnb recently has achieved where they were able to turn off a lot of their marketing activities in the lower funnel because they knew that consumers are so aware of them and really like them that if they're considering a vacation or going somewhere, they're not going to see the Airbnb inventory on Google necessarily. So they have to go to Airbnb to get that. And consumers do that because they like Airbnb. They prefer Airbnb versus staying in a hotel or maybe other rental companies that they could find online. So to me, from a brand feedback loop standpoint, we would definitely use that, but that's done more at a monthly or quarterly basis at most companies. So not super reactive. So then I'll get to like another galvanizing, very helpful set of metrics that we tracked across all of our marketing channels. We would try to optimize around maximizing profit dollars in most channels, but that's really hard to do over a long horizon. So other ways we would get at that is try to understand customer lifetime value and what those curves looked like, and then track that in terms of payback days. How much did we spend on a campaign? And then how long did it take to pay back a break even from that campaign? That was one tactic that we used that was very helpful for us to understand beyond just the immediate conversion. Are we getting customers that are turning into annuities and when are we getting ones customers that have very nice lifetime value curves that we can afford to pay a bit more on. And then the other big metric is various forms of return on ad spend. And I think what's key to all of these is some of these are your North Star metrics, like maximizing profit dollars. You can never do that perfectly. So you have to work with finance to say, what are we comfortable? We're not willing to look at lifetime value in underwriting investment today that assumes someone will be buying from us at a certain level in two or three years. The furthest out we were willing to look when we had a lot of data was about a year, but I think some of these metrics are great to rally around, but what's almost just as important is understanding what is actually incremental, right? So if you have these metrics, I just see a lot of companies get this wrong. They actually don't really have a good sense of what's incremental. So they're talking about return on ad spend or payback days, but they haven't really done the studies or understand how they're giving credit to a given channel well enough to know that their whole attribution system's completely flawed. So you really need to know not just what the metric is that matters, but how it's calculated. How accurate is it? It's that thing we learned in science class in like fifth or sixth grade, where you learn the definition of precision versus accuracy right? So there's a lot of companies, a lot of teams, and we've had made some of these mistakes at times where we have very precise information, but it's not accurate at all, right? That's very dangerous. So if it's precise and you think it's incrementality, but it's not, that's a dangerous spot to be in. So I think it's understanding that where your gaps are in the data and making sure you're trying to work to close those gaps as best as you can. But if not, what are other ways to validate or triangulate to find other ways that say, you know what, it does seem like it's directionally correct. We can make decision on this data because we have three different ways of measuring it. And it does seem like it's quite incremental. You just made some brilliant points,
0: especially about the precision versus accuracy. And you really have to question where the data is coming from. I know this is throwing a little bit of a curveball at you, but against the backdrop of today's economic uncertainty, I'm talking to a lot of CMOs who are really struggling with belt tightening going on within the organization. You're sharing a lot of insights about how people can get smarter with their approach to marketing. And I'm curious, you were at Wayfair driving tremendous growth during the 2018 recession. Like, are there any big tips that you would share about either justifying the role of marketing or how to manage and optimize your budget through a time of economic uncertainty?
1: such as we're facing now. Yeah, I mean, I think if you have done the work to really understand what we're just talking about in terms of how you're measuring things, what is incremental, getting as much accuracy as possible, and having ways to like validate that with different lift studies, that puts you in a really strong advantage. A lot of companies haven't done a lot of that. And, And again, it's an impossible endeavor to ever get perfect. But do you have a good starting point where you have some way of, we didn't talk a lot about setting ROI goals, but one thing we did is we actually had different targets for different parts of the funnel. Channels that are more upper funnel and they're telling a richer brand story ultimately make your demand capture channels work better, right? Most people know that intuitively. You can also validate that with either MMM models or Lyft studies where you have a different marketing mix in different geos. But if you believe that you have some way of assessing each individual channel and saying what does good look like, what's the ROI, and then equally important, in your bones, the organization believes that you need to be doing some brand marketing in order to have your performance campaigns channels work effectively, then you'll be in a better spot, right? I think people intuitively understand someone seeing a TV campaign or getting a catalog in the mail from a brand. Those are great canvases to tell a story. It's going to drive awareness. It's going to build some trust with that organization. So then maybe it's three weeks later or a month later, two months later, when they are actually in market and have a real need and maybe forgot about that company. But then they're searching on Google, which for the last 20 years, that's just how people search or do some research and discovery. There's no way around that really. Again, unless you're an Airbnb. And they see your brand next to three other brands that they've never heard of before. They now recall, oh, yeah, I did see a few commercials from them. Oh, yeah, that was the brand. I, I remember that logo. They're much more prone to click on you because there's some base level of trust. Now, you still need to have great pricing. You still have to have a solid shipping policy return. There's some table stakes that you need, but you're getting a chance to win that sale. And I think companies need to know that. I think when a company or a brand has done nothing to invest in getting alignment around how we measure that brand marketing or how we approach it, I think that's when you're on your heels more likely than not and where those budgets are probably more prone to get slashed deeper than that performance ones where just innately the performance channels right have the natural benefit in those moments of having much more data around them. So it's much easier to tell that ROI story but that doesn't mean it's any more important than the other. It's just easier.
0: Yeah, you did just a great job of explaining how you draw that line between brand marketing in terms of what you were talking about the importance of preference, right? Okay, we can create the opportunity through performance marketing. We can get smart about our channel decisions and how we're serving up information through the experience. But if you haven't first invested in a differentiating POV, like something that makes you stand out from the noise, so people recognize the brand in the first place or associate you with certain emotions or types of business, then you haven't established authority or credibility, then the performance at the end of the day
1: is going to suffer. That's right. That great canvas that we talked about earlier to tell a richer story. You can still talk about your value props, but you can also both show and tell, and just display your brand's personality a bit, whether it's a fun brand or whether it's a very technical, incredible brand, or whether it really stands for different environmental causes, whatever it is, those channels give you a little more space to do that so that when someone is ready to make a decision, they already understand that about the brand. And then it's more about the technical specs and the price points and all that.
0: Bob, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with our audience. Before we go, if I can hold you on for like one more minute, I have some speed round questions I'd love to throw at you just of your thoughts on these critical questions in the market. So I'm just going to ask you a question. It's just seven questions. Tell me what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear this. So first, as a marketer, what keeps you up at night? Is our site up
1: and running and working well?
0: Yes, so underrated, right? Because there are days when you can wake up and it's not.
1: What keeps you going? I think tackling new problems, putting structure around them and getting alignment and going after them and doing that enough times where you're getting wins from those problems that you solved three weeks ago or four weeks ago. It's a very addictive cycle to get wins. And it's really fun. And it all starts with that, like, issue identification, structuring the problem and going after it. What marketing term do you love? I'm going to give two. Both incrementality and causality. Smart. I
0: think that ties right back to so many of the points that you made in this discussion. So what marketing term do you
1: hate? Maybe because I hear it so much recently, AI. It's not that I hate AI. It's just right. it's gotten so much hype. And I think it's distracting a lot of marketers from some of the basics around just like better data hygiene and leveraging data in a more simplistic manner versus getting distracted by some of the shiny objects related to AI. Not that they're not amazing technology, but AI has, I think, taken up a lot of airspace over the last like year. Much of that is very warranted, but it's similar to the metaverse a year before where that was a big distraction, really didn't go anywhere. I think AI will be with us for a long time.
0: Right, right. We're definitely in the hype cycle. I don't know if we peaked yet. Maybe we've peaked and we're coming down a little bit, but there might be another version of AI. It's been generative AI so much recently, which is going to continue to be one of those areas that keeps peaking. But I'm glad you brought that up. And then a little bit of random question. What emoji do you think
1: best describes the current state of marketing? Whatever emoji displays like a frenetic nature of getting pulled in many different directions all within a singular day from being growth to cost cutting, to leveraging AI, to influencer marketing, to supporting different business lines. I think marketers are increasingly getting pulled in many different directions with many mouths to feed. Agree with that. I
0: think of that as like the melting face, maybe, but then it's also of the exciting parts of the
1: job is tip of spear. Yeah. Is there an emoji that's like a head spinning? Whatever that one would be. The head exploding. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's a bad thing. It's what makes our jobs extremely fun, but it's a lot. And I think it's just, it's more now than ever. Agree with that.
0: And then the eternal debate, quality or quantity? Quality. Love it. Thank you so much, Bob, for joining. In the show notes, I would love to share some details about how folks can catch up with you today. I know you're advising many companies. How can people tap into your expertise? And I look forward to maybe having you
1: back and we can focus on AI and that whole debate. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. It's amazing technology. I always like to warn people to beware of shiny objects and how much time you're spending on them because there's a lot of low-hanging fruit every single day that you shouldn't ignore. And for where people can find me, LinkedIn is the best place. Bob Sherwin on LinkedIn. Yeah, happy to connect with folks anytime.
0: All right, fantastic. And I think people can understand why they might benefit from your expertise from this conversation today. So thanks so much, Bob, again,
1: for joining. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Content Disrupted brought to you by Skyward. Stay up to date on the latest ideas and insights in brand building and content marketing by visiting our website at skyward.com. Join us for our next episode where we'll continue to challenge marketing norms and inspire you with fresh strategies for growing business through brand storytelling. See you there.